Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thanks for joining us on the New Books in Theater podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Freeman. Today we'll be discussing Word Made Flesh, Philosophy, Eros, and Contemporary Tragic Drama with author George Hunka. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Theater podcast. I'm your host, Matt Freeman, and with me today is George Hunka, the author of Word Made Flesh, Philosophy, Eros, and Contemporary Tragic Drama. Um, uh, Thanks for joining us, George. Pleasure to be here, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So um, this uh, book um, seems to come out of a lot of uh, work that you've done online um, and also uh, just your own study. Um, I'd love for you to give us a bit of a, a background on, to start with, who you are and uh, where you're coming from. Sure. Um, well, I, I uh, guess that I'm best best known for the blog Superfluities, which is now Superfluities Redux. Um, I started keeping the blog back in around 2003. I think this is the eighth year. Uh, And I started it as a means of coming back to the theater. I uh, had been a playwright when I was much younger, um, in my 20s, and this is back in the 1980s or so. And then I... uh, I stopped writing plays for about for about 20 years, and then I came back to it. And I thought that uh, this new uh, means of online communication, the blog, was a good way of sort of getting my thoughts in order about what I wanted to say in the form of theater um, that I had abandoned 20 years <laughs> before. Um, and, you know, uh, as a writer, I, I think more or less in words, and that uh, putting them together certainly helps me clarify my own thought. Uh, so when I started writing plays again, I started the blog. Um, and, you know, I, I stopped writing originally uh, in the 1980s because I'd written several plays and had a few produced. I was in Philadelphia at the time. And then I found myself in a position in which I had uh, really didn't know what I wanted to say uh, in the form of theater uh, or in the form of drama. And there's a there's a wonderful there's a wonderful joke by Tom Lehrer that, you know, if you have nothing to say, the very least you can do is shut up. So (laughs) so that's what I did. And then around the time I hit my early 40s, I found that uh, that I did have something that I wanted to say in that form and and started uh, superfluities pretty much as a way of clearing the path for this new work that I was pursuing. Uh, Interesting. uh, Yeah. Much of the book, much of the book came from. came from things that I'd written for the blog in the years since around 2005 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so almost all of the material has been rewritten, but uh, it's obviously not a collection of everything that has been pared down considerably. Uh, sure. So, so I, I consider it a distillation of my thoughts about theater and drama uh, in the years since 2005 or so. Interesting. And and um, so the plays that you wrote um, early on, how would you characterize those oh, before you before you walked away? Oh, oh uh, they were they were pretty much uh, plays that were, you know, in, in some kind of a naturalistic or realistic or satiric format. Um, I, I wrote a series of monologues uh, called Neurotica that was produced in Philadelphia background uh, 1987, 1988 or so. Uh, I wrote uh, a series of monologues, not unlike, you know, the Eric Bogosian monologues that are in uh, uh, talk, not talk radio, but in some of his earlier pieces. So, sure. And I wrote and I wrote pretty much standard, you know, ripoffs of uh, people like Harold Pinter, uh, who, who was one of the figures uh, who, who uh, gave me uh, the impetus to start writing for myself. Sure. Um, and then I just I just pretty much thought that you know, I had a look at the theatrical and dramatic landscape and I said that I really have nothing to add to it at this point. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, some formal questions 
had become clearer to me that uh, that I really thought that um, I could return to theater with something that I could say in a distinctive way. Uh, so, so that's the sort of plays I wrote. I wrote uh, in, in the eighties. And so, um, it, that's one thing I, I think is very interesting about the book. We'll, we'll move into the, the the content of the book a little bit, um, but also that you seem very interested in sort of form and the impulse to create theater as opposed to literally the the content of the messages in the theater. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it seems, or maybe it's all of the above, but it seems that your uh, that the what interests the book is um, why people write or or create and um, and and the way in which they create the work just as much as um, what it is they have to say. Would you say that's accurate or? Yes, uh, and I think a lot of that comes from a sense of what place the theater has in culture today and why would anyone choose to work in the form of theater say instead of television or film or poetry or 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 the novel um and in the last hundred years you know we've gotten quite a number of media that that have in a way supplanted theater in the in the sense that you know we now tell stories with film or or with uh with television uh or or online what what draws a person to the very particular formal qualities of theater i think is a question that becomes more and more acute when we have so many other outlets for for writing uh so i think yes that's that's quite true. It mm-hmm. does address that question of why choose the theater over any other form. Uh, and, and I, you know, we can go into this when we get into the book. And I, sure, I sure. Have one yeah, well, let's, 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 spot. let's talk about it. Uh, sure. Um, I mean, uh, what I, what I'd love to, to sort of, uh, start off by saying is that obviously this is, uh, a pretty rare book these days for an American to write. And I don't, maybe I'm wrong about that, or maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm just not well read enough, but, um, I don't see a lot of books written this way about theater. Um, you know, as I'm, as I'm developing this new books and theater podcast, yeah. when I reach out and, uh, to find new books about theater, they either w- live very much in the academic world or they tend to be books about the business. Right. You know, they tend to be books about, and there's nothing wrong with them. They're very interesting and entertaining, and there's a lot to learn there, obviously. But you know, books about Broadway or or how to get a job in theater, right. or you know, the best contemporary monologues, or you know, and then there's people who step back and write maybe an autobiography of a uh, of Shakespeare again. Yes. Um, but uh, but you seem to be wrestling very much with the core of of. Uh, uh, what you what you call tragedy here, and it seems to me, obviously we all know the terms tragedy and comedy, that you're using the word tragedy in a very specific way, contemporary tragic drama. Yeah. So specifically that you actually sort of cut out almost all American drama from what you're saying is is tragedy. Would you speak a little bit to what it is uh, that you mean by tragedy in the book, if, if that's possible to do? Um, what <laughs> It, under how you're defining tragedy? Sure. Well, I think the first thing that I should say is that uh, it, it's an attempt to draw uh, a new a new perspective on tragedy, and that it's not limited to a specific genre. When we talk about tragedies or comedies, we're generally talking about whether a play fits into one or the other. Uh, yeah, we, we think of tragedy as a genre. Right. But I'm right. Uh, taking a rather different tack here. Uh, I. I Think of tragedy as a consciousness, as a process, uh, rather than as a convenient pigeonhole for a given, uh, a given body of work, a given body of plays. And I think it's necessary to differentiate that from what you must call the comic, uh, consciousness that sees the world as a place essentially, uh, that things are reconciled, uh, at the end, that, you know, it's largely an empirical world, uh, where, you know, the, uh, Funny things happen and then uh, laugh. But 
but and even even in the face of uh, you know, when I was reading this, I kept thinking of even in the face of great despair, we tend to rely for truth these days, especially in like television or what have you, on the comics, on the John Stewart or the Stephen Colbert, who sort of, uh, you know, which are, you know, excellent at what they do. Right. But that we don't like to even in the face of, let's say, the Bush administration or what have you, we don't um, we don't wallow. We look for the absurdity or what have you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it's certainly there. And uh, to bring it back to theater for a moment, we can look to certain uh, plays such as Joe Orton's plays uh, in the 1960s, yeah. uh, which are certainly comedies or farces, as a matter of fact. And uh, but we always see, even in Orton's plays, uh, a reconciliation at the end, at the end of perhaps his greatest play, What the Butler Saw, um, everybody gets together and says, let's put on our clothes and face the light. And uh, and so, you know, everything is resolved at the end. Um, but the other thing that uh, the people that you mentioned do, and I find them quite funny myself when I see them on television sometimes, sometimes I don't, uh, mm-hmm. is that it does tend to treat all of experience as somehow ironic. If you speak from a comic uh, perspective, then you can always say, I was just joking. You always have that kind of plausible deniability mm-hmm. for consciousness, and you can say, I was just trying to be funny, I didn't mean it. Um, t- tragedy sort of takes that away. Tragedy and the tragic consciousness says that, well, you know, there are consequences, and that they can't simply be laughed off, and it's not a matter simply of you know, telling a better joke that... that uh, that we can deny responsibility for. Uh, so, so I think that's that's a keen difference between what we consider to be comic and tragic. Uh, you can look at other people such as uh, Chris Hedges, who is a reporter for the New York Times, very much a commentator on the political scene, um, but he's not funny and he's not comic. And you're left with, uh, at the end of one of uh, Chris's um, essays or one of his speeches with a sense of, of profound um, disillusionment and, and what do we do next? It can't simply be laughed off. And I think that the culture itself tends to marginalize those people because they're not amusing or they're not entertaining in a way. They leave us quite without that sense of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. You also note in the book that it's it sort of, um, and that's not to belittle people who uh, legitimately have illness, you know, chronic illness, but right. that all form of depression is a form of sickness. Right. And that uh, here you actually pose that sometimes, uh, you know, tragic consciousness is a, or, um, or, or even uh, melancholy as a form of specifically a spiritual health. Yes. Uh, there are things to be depressed about. And uh, <laughs> it's true. there are lots of things to be depressed about. And uh, if you look at, the, say, the, uh, the history of the 20th century, there's not much there to really to really make you leap out of bed in the morning and, and seize the day. Uh, so the question is whether or not melancholy and, and depression can be signs of health. I suppose that's a simple way of putting it, but uh, what they really do, and to get beyond this ethical or moral uh, definition of sickness or, or health or illness is that uh, it provides another window, another perspective on, uh, on everyday experience mm-hmm. and, uh, and on what happens in our own lives. Uh, we can learn from, from melancholy. We can learn from depression about uh, our own self-imposed limitations and uh, what we choose to acknowledge and not acknowledge in our lives. And uh, so in a sense, I I think it's really quite healthy. And I think that to treat it medically or to treat it as kind of a sickness contributes to a blindness as to some of the very dark corners that the history of the 20th century, indeed the history of human experience, uh, suggests. Hmm. Blindness is... Blindness is not good. No, um, yeah. certainly, certainly, uh, blindness, especially self-imposed blindness or refusal to look at these darker corners, is is I think a sickness uh, in that it uh, it limits and cripples us to uh, what is actually possible and what is not, what may not be possible in our experience. Hmm. 
Um, so let's bring this uh, back towards theater a little bit, as obviously you're a dramatist and a, a theater writer. Um, and the reason I, you know, it's very easy to sort of uh, move into those tangents, I would say, is that um, the book, it, it's, its focus is theater, but it does, you know, uh, touch on a lot of very broad and interesting subjects. It, it's, it's really a deep read of, of a variety of ways in which the culture uh, is reflected in us. Right. Um, but I would say my question is, so theater, uh, through this lens, how do you um, – what is it that you are trying to inspire – uh, with this book in, let's say, playwrights or directors or actors? What is it that you're not seeing or um, in American theater, for example, which you, 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 you literally, I believe, say in the book that you see it in Pinter and in Beckett and in Sarah Kane, but that you haven't yet to see it really. You even you dismiss Arthur Miller as as melodrama. Um, yes. As opposed to tragedy. Yes. Even though a lot of people have ascribed to him sort of the tragic form. So what is it that American theater is is not doing that that you you hope that it, it could achieve? And, and to get back to Miller just for a second, he's sure. uh, one of the Americans who's actually probably written most uh, about tragedy from from a theoretical standpoint in his essays. Uh, I do find that that Miller is more of a melodramatist, say, than uh than a tragedian. And uh, we, we find tragedy in other forms in America. I think that we do find it in the music of Morton Feldman or in the painting of Mark Rothko. And we do find it in the theater. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who says, well, you know, the Europeans, uh, you know, do this and the Americans don't. And that makes Europe a much more. Oh, why not? Why not? Provo- provoke us. Okay, because, <laughs> it's not, because it's not true. I mean, yeah, true. it's. Uh, you know, that, and that we do have tragedians. We do have uh, Eugene O'Neill, and we do have other uh, writers who are exploring uh, the tragic aspects of experience. And sure. For Shin, certainly, I think, does so in, in some of his plays. Um, and uh, so, so I, I think that there is, uh, in America, um, a, a, a feeling that, you know, we use the theater is a, a place of entertainment. And entertainment uh, has its corollary amusement. Um, so I, I don't think we, I mean, and we tend to go to the theater to be entertained or to uh, have fun, to use that word. And and not all theater is necessarily, necessarily has to subscribe to those ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is uh, partly a historical, uh, a historical coincidence and that uh, America does not have as strong a theater culture as a nation, as uh, as European nations do, um, I, I think that we're uh, and you know one hates to speak in broad generalizations, but you know we're uh, a, a nation in which uh, which is very practical. Uh, we don't uh, tend to uh, contemplate as much as uh, you know as other European cultures do. We don't place as high a value on meditation and contemplation as we do on doing. Yes. Uh, and I think, I think in terms of tragedy and comedy, I think that, you know, tragedy is a meditative art, eventually, mm-hmm. and a contemplative art, because you're left, as I say, not with uh, reconciliation, but with uh, an open end that requires us to think about uh, things. And we're not, as a culture... Uh, used to thinking about ourselves in a quiet way. We're always, you know, looking for the next distraction. So uh, I, I don't hope to inspire anybody by the book. Look, I'm, I'm a realistic person. <laughs> not, not looking to inspire, but to provoke or just to express yourself. I imagine I, I, I hope to inspire myself to a certain degree uh, by, by putting, putting these things into words and arranging them. Uh, but, but, you know, I have no, I have no uh, illusion that... Uh, anything that I write is going to be meaningful to anybody but those who seek it out and who find uh, a personal uh, significance in what I write. And since I consider the audience not as a collective but as a group of individuals sitting in a the theater, that's that's just fine with me. So, uh, you know, so, it's, so as far as the question of influence or inspiration, I'm afraid I'm uh, left empty-handed in terms of a real 
response to your question. Well, I, that is a response. I, I would say um, I found myself thinking a lot about the way that theater in the United States is funded and built in a practical way by, you know, the use of grants and nonprofits and often in order to sort of uh, get paid for or or get funding for a project, an artistic project, um, you have to uh, apply a mission to it. You have to yes. apply use. Yes. You have to say this is not um, a play because plays are useful, mm-hmm. but it is a play because this play will inspire people to change their behavior this way, or this play w- is – a exploration of this social problem. Yeah. So, so, and I think this book is sort of, um, this text, you know, speaks out against that. Do you, uh, could you speak to that a little bit? The idea of what utilitarian as opposed to um, uh, what you feel the opposite may be? Well, sure. Uh, And I think this is um, a key question as well, and I think you're right to bring it up. We do tend to think, and in the funding uh, and funding institutions have something to do with this as well. We do think that a play or a piece of theater has some kind of a social instrumentality um, that it's supposed to somehow, uh, you know, reflect uh, cultural or, or political or ideological conditions uh, in which we live, uh, that it has to have some kind of a social value. And I think this, again, speaks to, you know, kind of an American uh, understanding of, of utilitarianism. So the theater plays have to have a use, and that use is usually defined as uh, a means of collective uh, experience and that we learn something, um, that we are educated somehow about uh, a certain uh, aspect of the world in terms of, say, uh, verbatim theater. Yeah. Or, or, you know, uh, there, there are plays that examine racism, and this is what this play is about, racism, and we try to attach them to things that we consider uh, relevant uh, parts of uh, our experience as a culture. Uh, theater can do that. I'm, I have no... I, but theater can do so much more, I think. Um, the theater theater has also a use, if one wants to use that word, to the individual, and that theater can open us to other means of looking at the world, not as a collective, but as individuals. And uh, that brings in a, a host of other artists who, who believe that very same thing, such as Richard Foreman, uh, who, who attempt to place more responsibility in the individual than in the collective for any kind of social change. But, you know, we live in a collectivist society in a sense. So I think that's such an interesting thing to to say. I mean, especially considering, you know, here in the United States, we the myth of the United States is that it is a individualistic place yeah. where each person is has personal freedoms that supersede all other rights, mm-hmm. and um, and to say that you know we're a collectivist society is, is sort of to to sort of ascribe the the sort of opposite uh, opposite uh, categorization. But then again, when we and I can I guess what I'm saying is I can see why you do that with an audience. When we speak of the audience, yeah. we're often talking about uh, this mass. Of maybe individual demographic groups, mm-hmm. but they're never a. It's not the person. Yes, it's or at least or at least rarely. And you're saying with Foreman, he asks the individual to respond on their own. Yes, and I think the same is true of of, of Howard Barker and a few other dramatists uh, in in Europe. Uh, I, I I think in part uh, that. I'm trying to I'm trying to form uh, sure. something here which is right on the tip of my tongue and I'm having trouble getting the words out unusually in my case, I guess. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I think it's because, you know, we, we don't place we consider now in the 21st century. And I think this is a, a an outgrowth of postmodernism and other uh, and the culture industry that the individual is the construct of the community uh, or the society in which. They live that the very idea of individual itself 
is uh, is somehow illusory that um, that we don't really have an individual being that it's all uh, it's affected by our culture and what our culture tells us uh, we should be as good citizens or or a, a good uh, a good worker or a, a good husband or a good father or a, a good wife. It's all it's all identity in relationship to others or the society. Yes, and, but I think a collectivist would say that it's kind of a self fulfilling argument, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're coming at it from from a collectivist point of view, then of course you're going to say that there's no such thing as an individual. But that also leads to the idea of the audience as being this kind of mass being that has some kind of other uh, other status than as a collection of individuals, uh, which is. I think simply not true, and I think that the proof of this lies when you're sitting in an audience, whether it's for a film or uh, you're sitting in your living room with some friends and something's on television that's supposed to make you laugh. Everybody else in the room is laughing and you're not. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that means that you know um, you are not swayed by what the collective is doing at the moment. You don't have the same reaction. Uh, and that is the first clue that you know, this idea of the audience as uh, a block of people with the same reaction, with the same identity, is, is an illusion itself. Uh, so how does that change with the work? How does that affect what the playwright is doing? Do you feel like playwrights uh, sort of default to speaking to a, a broad audience, it's, you know, in that collectivist term? Or, or, do, you, or do you feel that... Uh, they're trained to do that, or is it, or is it the impulse to entertain I don't that drives us that I don't, direction? I don't think they're trained to do it. I think they do it very much voluntarily. That there's always, you know, a sort of safety in numbers, and uh, that you know, eventually you may find yourself laughing in that audience, even though you don't think it's funny, so that you can feel to be a part of that of that collective, to be a part of that community. Uh, there's something very uh, we fear isolation. We fear being alone. We fear uh, being in solitude uh, because it places us face to face with certain aspects of ourselves that we might not prefer to recognize. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I think we don't, you know, we're not trained to do it. I think we do it. Uh, we we do it voluntarily. Uh, so, in response to your question, uh, there's there's another way of looking at theater in that. You, uh, instead of invalidating that individual experience, you validate it. You free the individual audience member to make new imaginative connections between the things that he or she sees on stage. You become an uh, active participant in making uh, a consciousness, an aesthetic consciousness that you then take away with you. One of the things that I find most interesting about somebody like Richard Foreman's work is that when you go to see a Foreman play, and if you're open-minded enough to its aesthetics, you leave the theater looking at the world in an entirely different way than you did when you went in. You actually live, in a sense, in a new kind of consciousness. You look at objects in a different way. Uh, they have yeah. another kind of significance for you, even though, uh, there's there's really no narrative in, in theater, and it's you know uh, a theater of nonsense. But you change your perspective, you change your consciousness. The world becomes a broader place to you after you see a play like that. Your imagination comes more into play about the elements in society that act upon each other. Um, so you know, in a sense, even uh, a work like uh, a Richard Foreman play mm-hmm. is uh, is a potentially uh, a potentially life-changing experience, and not only that, but once you see the world in a different way, you act in it in a different way as well. So uh, it still has a social and a political significance, but one which is quite different from those issue plays uh, that we were talking about before. Yeah, because they're not. It's not speaking to an issue of the day. It's speaking to the way in which you perceive any issue. Yes, and the way in which you perceive any issue is also extendable to the way you perceive issues of the day. Uh, so so it's much broader to my mind and a much richer theatrical experience than, than say, a, 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 you know, an, an issue play or a play with a, a traditional uh, dramaturgical format, um, the well-made play or, or the play of a, a traditional narrative. Right. Um, one thing, speaking to that, is that I think sometimes uh, we 
mistake or, uh, or maybe not mistake, but equate um, what you're talking about with sort of magic in the theater or, or something sort of amazing happening on stage. Um, look at that guy spitting through the air. Look at how they made the car fly. Um, or maybe even smaller tricks or, you know, um, when you see a, a company with a small budget able to make quick changes or what have you. And in the book, um, you note that you are suspicious of magic in the theater, um, uh, which I, I don't know. There are times when um, uh, when Foreman certainly has a fair amount of stagecraft. What separates how do you define magic in the theater and why are you suspicious of it i'm suspicious of magic in the theater in the sense of you know that it's illusion that it's sleight of hand that it's hiding something that's making uh something happen on the stage uh i mean we could say that you know there are certainly very theatrical moments in the theater but i don't know if i would call them magic because you see uh, a lot of the machinery uh, in, in uh, the theater of Richard Foreman, and it's not really hidden. I mean, uh, in the right, in, in that took place before before say 2007. You know, uh, there he was uh, himself, right in the middle of the audience, sort of manipulating what was going on on stage. I mean, you didn't he didn't even have the uh, have the modesty to hide up in the booth, uh, and and this <laughs> follows upon that whole. Uh, Brechtian idea of, you know, letting the audience see the mechanics behind what they were seeing on stage. Uh, so, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if I would call a, a moment like that in theater magical. I just don't really think that's a very useful term. Um, spectacular, sure. But I think that there's a, a difference between an act of magic and an act of spectacle. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, the other thing that I would have to say about that too is that um, instead of saying magical, I think that there are sort of metaphysical recognitions uh, that occur when uh, some, something maybe mystical happens rather than magical. When you feel a certain connection between yourself as an individual audience member and uh, something that happens on stage, the way an actor or an actress turns, or the significance that is imbued in an object on stage. Um, so, so far from, you know, I, I, I distrust uh, deliberate manipulation of, of what's happening on stage towards some kind of end that's supposed to provoke uh, an awe moment, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, a moment of awe that sort of... Uh, a moment of A.W., not a moment of A.W.E. Uh-huh, uh I see, okay. Two entirely different things. Uh, sure. You know, uh, awe is, indeed, A.W.E. is that metaphysical recognition of something when you're suddenly, uh, something is revealed to you that you hadn't recognized before, uh, but awe is a moment when you completely lose yourself in the moment and in uh, illusion and that it's ultimately very blinding as to what's actually happening behind behind that illusion or behind that sleight of hand. Interesting. Um, now, I want to step back to a, a slightly different question. There's uh, something I highlighted from the book that I, I felt was a, a really strong statement that sort of speaks to the heart of what Word Made Flesh is, seems to be saying. Um, I'm going to quote a little bit to you, and I'd love for you to respond to it and talk about what, what inspired this. Of course. Um, it says, if theater is sick, then the sickness is a lack the lack of the forgotten origin of the art. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, please, could you speak to uh, what uh, the forgotten origin of the art there? Uh, in Western tradition, uh, mm -hmm. I can really only speak with any kind of knowledgeability to that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that really uh, theater began with tragedy, um, with the witnessing of, of uh, terrible uh, things happening to people, good and bad people. Sure. But terrible things that, uh, you know, the gods imposed um, in, the, in the Greek era and that experience itself imposed in the, in the Enlightenment era. Uh, era. Um, and I think that we've, that we don't want to come to face with these same truths anymore again uh, in the sense that, uh, as I said before, we just don't want to come face to face with these because they're not entertaining or amusing mm -hmm. in some way. Uh, I mean, they're also, they're not, um, they can be 
they could be disturbing in the in the, the basic sense of being disturbed because in those stories um, they don't apply a a a moral right lesson primarily if you suffer because the gods say so that's just your lot it's not necessarily because you did something wrong or right right it, it was in the cards all along in a way it's a, in a way a very deterministic view of the universe i suppose um and uh, but you know our contemporary theater uh has rather neglected that and um it hasn't made us come face to face with these uh with, with this nature of experience or nature of existence you know at its ground at its basis as being a tragic uh, a, a tragic pessimistic worldview I suppose um, and and without that without that perspective I think that the theater is a, a fragmented thing it's broken uh, I call it sick because it's not whole it's not uh, it's not recognizing that aspect of human experience uh, it's not putting it up for us to look at, to contemplate and meditate upon. And ultimately, it's a theater that is uh, going to ignore a broad swathe of, of what we all know in our daily lives uh, to be uh, boredom or, or, or suffering or pain. Uh, so, so it's very blinkered, the theater now. Um, and the sickness, as I say, is a lack of this consciousness, is a lack of this perspective. You can see it in a way. Uh, in the difficulty of, uh, you know, some writers uh, of the tragic consciousness to have their work uh, produced in this country, people like uh, people like Sarah Kane and Howard Barker, and even when we do produce plays uh, by somebody like Samuel Beckett, it's those early plays we tend to produce, those plays that have, a, you know, a strong comic element. And I'm not saying that, you know, plays shouldn't have humor or comedy in them, but that we. Uh, tend to um, emphasize that at the expense of the broader tragic implications of the plays themselves. One thing you definitely notice about how uh, uh, Beckett is taught, um, there is a focus on Beckett as comedian or Buster Keaton fan or, you know, oh, you don't understand, Waiting for Godot is actually very funny. Yeah, and then and then later on, his work becomes far, very pared down, short, bleak, um, impactful, and uh, and um, but the, you know, in works like um, Not I, for example, you, you don't hear as much. I mean, there's there's no Buster Keaton. <laughs> Pretty much after 1962 and play, yeah, uh, there we we and you know the novel How It Is. Beckett moved into a, a, a more uh, pared-down experience in which these comic elements were seen by him as inessential to the uh, to the kind of expression that he wanted to pursue. So he dropped these, and um, I think he dropped these for you know the larger part of his career after 1962. When we talk about Beckett as comedian, we're usually almost talking about him in uh, plays such as Waiting for Godot. Uh, or, or crap, or, or, or happy days, uh, but then that was only a very small part of his uh, of his output. Uh, it all occurred before 1962. Pickett went on to write for another 25 years or so these small essential pieces that don't uh, that don't bear these uh, these comic elements anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he can he can be ascribed as a tragic playwright. One of the things that I want to say about Beckett also is that you know we tend to I, I keep on seeing all the time that, you know, um, Beckett is perceived as, in the Academy and all that, as, as sort of a tragic, dark, depressing writer. And ever since Beckett started to become known on these shores and in Europe, uh, the emphasis has always been on comic elements of his work. The subtitle of Ruby Combs' first book on Beckett, which was written in the early 60s, was The Comic Gamut. Uh, Hugh Kenner wrote a book uh, that included a long chapter about Beckett called the Stoic Comedians. So really, we're always used to thinking of Samuel Beckett as this kind of, you know, I mean, he says very depressing things, but really he's a very, very funny guy at the bottom of it. Uh, And I just don't think that the work bears this out, really. Uh, I think that the comic elements uh, do not outweigh uh, the darker, more tragic perspective that the plays plays express. Uh, And I think 
it's sort of like looking at waiting for a bill and, you know, not looking at the end speeches of the play of Vladimir's final speech or Pazzo's final speech. Uh, when will you stop tormenting me with this cursed time? And instead, just seeing the pants fall down, you know, or just seeing the little, uh, you know, the, the, the little hat business uh, that was taken from Laurel and Hardy. Uh, we tend to sure. think that that's Beckett and that the speeches at the end of the play, which is what Beckett meant to leave us with. Uh, were not as essential as those. So, so this whole thing about Beckett being, you know, a comedian or at bottom, I think is is something that you know is isn't very valid in a lot of ways. But huh. I think that we should, I, I, and I think that really, really, it's necessary to uh, you know stop setting Beckett up as uh, as a comedian and start looking at his work honestly, the way that he wanted to perceive it. I mean, there's very little laughter in the later places you point out. Uh, yeah. There's nothing, there's, there's no laughter really in how it is, uh, except a very dark, cruel laughter, I suppose. And then in the last three plays, Ohio Impromptu, uh, Catastrophe, and uh, What Where, uh, What Where's a play about torture. And, you know, there's, there's, there's no, uh, there's no pants falling down in that play anymore. And I think we should recognize that. And, uh, and that would give us a more honest, truer picture of, uh, Beckett's accomplishment than just by concentrating on the comic aspect and the comic elements of the place. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, one thing I, I wanted to say a little bit is uh, that for the lionization of tragedy in the book, there's something sort of hopeful in the way the book uh, refuses to accept that tragedy is no longer possible. You actually um, uh, say that um, that the the uh, the statement the death of tragedy is is a form of surrender and that you believe it's absolutely possible to recapture in today's world. Would you speak a little bit to that uh, to feeling that that you actually sort of uh, you have something that you say about the whole the death of trope? Yeah. Um, that you feel is sort of more useful for book titles and actual thought. That's exactly right. I, you know, it, it's very nice to make a pronouncement that something is dead, the death of this, the death of that. That is George Steiner book, The Death of Tragedy. I think Eric Siegel wrote a book called The Death of Comedy. I mean, everything is dead. And I think it's a very good, it's a very good way of making yourself known. Uh, you know, the, there was uh, the death of irony, I think, in the days just after 9-11. Yeah, right. I think, I think that, you know, the... The Daily Show and the Colbert Report certainly put paid to that idea um, that, that irony is never healthier than it is now, really. Um, so these things are dead. Uh, the question is how much they are welcomed or considered to be a part of a valid aesthetic pursuit. Uh, if we look at tragedy, however you define it, as uh, as something that's you know, not going to be cordial to the audience. It doesn't have any money in it. That doesn't lead to, uh, you know, some kind of reconciliation or some kind of comfort. Tragedy shouldn't lead to any kind of comfort. Then, um, then, then I'm afraid it's really quite uh, unsaleable. Uh, that doesn't mean that it can't be done. Uh, but not everything is for sale. I mean, the, the pursuit of tragedy is going to happen because it's an essential part of our nature. It's not dead at all. Uh, whether it's going to happen on the stage of the Vivian Beaumont Theater or in a 30-seat black box theater downtown, it's still going to be there. Uh, every generation has a different means of uh, defining tragedy. Uh, certainly, Greek tragedy is a different animal from uh, from Elizabethan or Jacobean tragedy is a different animal. From Senecan tragedy is a different animal. From uh, tragedies that were written by uh, the Romantic poets is certainly different from what uh, what Howard uh, Barker writes or Sarah Kane. Um, but if you look at tragedy as I said before, as a consciousness rather than as a genre, then certainly tragedy remains possible and it remains. Viable, and it remains there to make a theater which, once again, can explore these uh, rather darker issues to sort of explain ourselves to ourselves and to provide new imaginative possibilities for the means in which we move in this world and the way we interact with each other. It leads us to a greater understanding of how important compassion is uh, rather than uh, how important uh, collective security is, for example. Hmm. So, so it's there. And I don't think it's dead. I don't think anything's dead. People are always saying, 
you know, that, that classical music is dead too, or new music is dead. And that's simply not true either. It's just changed form. It's uh, more or less out of the spotlight. It's more or less an important part of the way we conceive of an art form, but it's certainly not going anywhere. That's, uh, yeah, I, I definitely uh, concur. I, I, I think it's uh, interesting to speak in terms of what's visible as opposed to what's alive. Right. <laughs> it's, it may be, um, maybe what's, it, what is, it, in your term, tragic is, is simply just, you know, it's not finding its way. It's not being paid for by the current grant structure or it's not finding its way to express uh, utilitarian values, but it's it's still part of the human experience. Yeah. Um, I, I want to one more thing. I want to say. Sure, please, please. About that, that, you know, I mean, we do uh, pay a lot of lip service to tragedy, and it's not as if, you know, tragedy isn't done on our stages, especially in revivals, uh, reproductions of the Greeks. Uh, there's certainly, especially in times of war like these, and I can't think of uh, can't think of an era in human history which wasn't somehow uh, accompanied by war. Um, and we see, of course, revivals. Derek Jacobi is going to be in uh, King Lear. So it's not as if we don't have these, but they're, they're put up as sort of um, museum pieces in a way. Uh, we put them up because we feel obliged to put up. Contemporary redefinitions of tragedy, however, are those things which are not being uh, produced. Uh, we go to a Shakespeare play or a Greek tragedy because it's good for us in a way, and it's good for us in a sense that it connects us to our Western heritage uh, or what we think we should know. It's a matter of cultural literacy. But if it's a play written by Joe Blow and it's a tragedy and it was just written last week, there's, there's far less likelihood that there's going to be any interest in producing it because, again, it's going to be seen as uh, not, uh, it won't attract a lot of people. Uh, people don't want to be, uh, you know, in the, people don't want to think in the theater. They want to have fun, uh, something that, and then have a couple of beers afterwards. Um, we, we, theater is a very marginalized and, and unimportant thing, uh, in, if you put it in those terms, without tragedy. And, uh, so, so really, it's not as if tragedy isn't out there, but it's, it's, it, it, we, we look at it and we give it good reviews for very much the wrong reasons, I think. Interesting. Um, one uh, thing I want to uh, leave us with as we're closing up uh, the discussion is um, in the um, part of how you reflect on the text itself is to talk about how um, each sort of experience with tragedy and with drama is in, inherently personal, that each of these things is, is being filtered through an individual experience as opposed to a collective uh, experience, and you speak a little bit about what inspired you to write these texts and inspired your aesthetics and, and talk about your father a bit. Yes. Um, could you speak a little bit, I mean, you don't have to tell us his life story if you don't want to, but um, speak a little bit about how you were inspired um, and have been informed by your experience with your father? I'm not sure it's a matter of inspiration. You're talking about the... Uh the last section of the book, uh, an epilogue called, called The Origins of Tragedy. And I, I, talk, about, uh, I talk about the experience uh, of, of uh, watching my father uh, die uh, a few years ago. Um, and I was at his side at the same time. Uh, you know, my, my wife was pregnant with our first child. Uh, I speak especially about... Uh, the ways that you come to uh, a tragic consciousness or that you take that tragic consciousness as your own as opposed to, say, a comic consciousness and how this uh, makes you look at the world. Uh, I say in the book particularly that all of this stuff about tragedy and what we've talked about the last hour or so is fairly highfalutin uh, meta to use uh, the word everybody's using today, stuff, and it's very abstract. But uh, the tragic consciousness is born not in abstraction, but in personal experience, uh, in what happens to us every day, and things that we've gone through. And that is what leads us to look at the world in a certain way. Uh, I prefer to put the word tragic upon that consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, of course, my decision. People have other words for it, I'm sure. But tragedy is the word that comes closest, I suppose, to my own. But it comes from, you know, uh, 
my experience with other people in the world and with knowing my father's and watching him pass away uh, so that it's not abstracted at all, that it's very deep and it comes not, and this is why theater and tragedy is, is really not a career one chooses. It's, uh, it speaks to something very, a very deeply felt need, almost a physical need in, in the writer to express this consciousness this way that they look at the world. It's not based in philosophy. It's not an abstraction. It comes from what we feel deeply in ourselves every day. Uh, mm. Now, as I say in the book, you know, I mean, I usually, you know, I, I, I refer to other philosophers all the time and other playwrights, Schopenhauer, Adorno, but I don't, uh, I, I don't get my consciousness from these writers. They rather uh, confirm uh, what I already uh, intuited myself about about experience. Right. Um, that it and it sort of broadens my 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 conception uh, of of what experience is, which then I bring to the theater. Uh, so it, it just makes me think of, um, you know, in our own individual lives, we all seek out friends who share our values um, and they don't have to have our exact same experience or values, but, and they can broaden our, our knowledge and they can make us think about ourselves in a different way. But there is some sort of core of, I met this person, I relate to this person, this person speaks my language, yeah. and that by itself is enough to inform or enrich my life. And, and I, I think that um, in a lot of ways, uh, people have the same experience with philosophers or novelists or poets. They don't they aren't told how to experience the world by these people. It just they you find your your own personal experience reflected in them yeah. and enriched by them. Yeah, I know, and I know you feel the same way. Uh, being as you know, familiar with your work, uh, I know that we that we both feel similarly about this. I think that when it comes to something like a tragic consciousness, uh, that I, I think there are probably fewer people today with whom you can find those elective affinities, um, which is uh, the best way to put it, I suppose. Uh, so that you know, there's a much smaller collective of people. Uh, who would share uh, these ideas of what's important in theater or what's important uh, in, in the pursuit of putting on a play or writing a play uh, that, uh, you know, that, that it's much smaller than those who want to have a good time or do comedy or something like that, which, uh, which is fine. I mean, but theater is a collective art, as, uh, you know, as we all know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that's why, I think that I do theater. I'm naturally a person who enjoys solitude and isolation more maybe than other people do. And, uh, I have more of a, uh, I have more of a, a leaning towards melancholy and, and, and what you might call pessimism. But that doesn't mean that there aren't others that do so as well and that there aren't others who pursue these same kinds of things in the work they do in the theater. So theater isn't for them either. A, uh, uh, simply a career, but a means of expressing something of their consciousness in a collective, in a room with other people. It's not a social or community-building experience. It's a way of expressing um, your feelings about solitude, maybe even in a room full of people. Theater should bring us closer to ourselves as individuals. It should teach us more about ourselves, really, uh, mm. and, and as individuals and what we're capable of imaginatively. Uh, and, and experience, uh, then, then it is about, you know, how to stop wars or something like that. Um, mm. You know, those, those broader issue plays that we were talking about before. It's a, it's a personal individual experience that's enacted and experienced with other individual human beings in a pursuit towards recognizing, uh, that pain and suffering and therefore having compassion for the people that we, uh, that we see and live with every day. So, I suppose that's where I would want to leave it. That is uh, great. That's fantastic. I want to say that, you know, reading through the book, um, I was definitely struck by the depth of thought here. I was definitely, uh, my mind was wandering to all sorts of subjects that have, um, that are not only just day-to-day -day, uh, 
parts of my daily life, but also um, about how I pursue my own work. And I definitely recommend the book to any and all who are interested in and um, uh, theater that they make, theater that they maybe don't make, but want to uh, reach out and learn about um, how others perceive it. Um, I think it's a really exceptional book, and I really commend you on. Uh, it's been intriguing watching you um, build this work sort of publicly mm-hmm. and and then see this uh, this first book, uh, first of many, I'm sure, um, that uh, that really brings it all into some really uh, beautiful focus. Well, well, thank you for that. And I, uh, I you know, I mean, I, I hope that in reading the book, you didn't agree with all of it or even with a large part of it. Uh, no, I did. I left out where I was thoroughly offended. No, yeah. Well, Alex, Alex, <laughs> uh, Alex Sears wrote a little blurb about the book the other day on his blog, in which he called it splendidly disagreeable, and um, and I think that's probably that, that warms my heart really. Uh, that that just made my day. So, uh, well, there are definitely lines in here that will upset anyone with a, a MFA. Uh, good for that. Good for that. Yeah. And I'm sure, or any, or anyone who's a huge Brecht person. Well, you know. There you go. And Brecht was a great, I consider Brecht a great, uh, a great pioneer and a great innovator in the theater. And Brecht was, uh, still takes up a big place on my shelf. So, uh, so I'm happy to, uh, to meet with disagreeable people as well. So uh, that's fantastic. Right. Um, uh, so why don't you let us know, uh, how we can get our hands on a copy of Word Made Flesh? Well, probably the best way to do it. It's published by iCorner Press and, uh, you could probably do a search for it. The best way to do is to do a search for it on Amazon.com. Uh, if you're in England, Amazon.co.uk, just search for Word Made Flesh or search for George Hunka. Uh, you can also find, I'm, I'm continuing to explore some of the issues in the book at my blog uh, at superfluityredux.com. Uh, and uh, there you'll also find a link from the homepage to, uh, to a page for the book where you can find a few excerpts, downloadable excerpts as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, pretty much the way everybody gets books these days by getting books.com. <laughs> I'm afraid that there's no Kindle version yet or no ebook version yet, but who knows? That may change. Great. And iCorner is E-Y-E Corner Press. Yes. E-Y-E. As opposed to I, as in iPod. Uh, that's right. E-Y-E C-O-R-N-E-R. Excellent, excellent. Uh, George, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Matthew, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the New Books in Theater podcast. Check out all the great podcasts on the New Book Network at newbooknetwork.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook or follow us on iTunes or both. And uh, we also welcome feedback, so let us know your thoughts on newbooksintheater.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.